I mean, you tell me, I mean, where, where did it start? Where, where's the, where does this story start? It, well, Greg, I'll just tell you, I've had some, I've had some ups and downs that have made for good stories on podcasts, <laughs> which we could tell. So I could go back, I could go back. Let me give you some highlights and you tell me where you want to start. Yeah, great. I, I used to run the largest, most successful family law firm in the Bay Area, in, in Northern California. Hey, and what, was the, what was the firm? It was called Heath Newton. It was a divorce firm, divorce law, which is wow. not something I ever planned to do, but found myself doing and found myself doing really, really well, actually. Hey. From the heart, doing extraordinary work, um, making good money, but something was missing. And I went to a vacation, not a spiritual vacation, but just a vacation in Tibet and ended up coming face to face with my first glimpse of my ego identity as a separate thing from self, hmm. which is a, a way that I view the world now. And it was a fairly traumatic story, which is a long story. And it shattered me. I came back a completely different kind of a man in, a, hmm. in all of the right ways, if I may if I may say so about myself, hey. and re-met my future wife. I'd been courting this woman for three years and she'd been ignoring me, but she came to a happy <laughs> hour that I was hosting just after returning from this trip. And we saw each other. I looked at her as a whole human as opposed to a conquest. And I think, yeah. I don't know what she saw, but she saw something different. And the long and short of that is we were together from pretty much that moment ever since. And then I lost my law firm. It turned out my partner was embezzling from our clients and the only way to stop that was to shut the firm down and pay the money back myself. I lost everything. She stuck with me through that, through that downturn. And then I had something of a spiritual awakening experience that I don't make too much of. I don't assign enlightenment to myself. I just had it. I just had a mystical experience, but a strong one. Which, and it talked, which was? Uh, the, the, the Cliff's Notes version is that what had begun on this trip to Tibet, seeing my ego identity as a thing separate from myself, resolved in one sudden moment into an experience of allowing that ego identity to fall away and lose prevalence in the experience that I was having of consciousness, which is a really heady way of just saying <laughs> my identity just became a lot less important. I just a lot less important, like massively less important, monumentally less important. I yeah, just how, suddenly wasn't important. How you show up or rather how you're seen by other people, what they think of you, whether you're important in their eyes, where you are on the social status, like all of these things that can become so consuming in a life or in a relationship, they just shifted into something like its proper proportion. Yes. And I would give a lot more emphasis to it, if you'd like, um, around what it means to have an identity and how that can fall away and how we're over identified with an identity. I think, or I was, I can't speak for others and letting go of holding on to this firm belief in who I was and what mattered, et cetera, released extraordinary energy. And then I felt immense bliss. I could feel and taste the texture of the world with a clarity and passion that hadn't been available before that lasted for a long time. During that time, I launched a podcast about relationships that was also very successful and was a lot of fun. And I eventually put down to, to, to join the startup. Uh, but the, but the part of the story I think that would be relevant to you or the interesting perhaps to you there is the relationship with my wife that blossomed out of that surrender was one that I didn't know you could have before. And this then sets the stage for her death in a way for me when I when I reflect on it, because we were we were really in love. Yeah. I mean, we were really in love, and we had really hard times. We fought just like people do. We fought bad, actually, but we never 
We never let go of, it wasn't even a letting go. We never lost connection to our connection on this fundamental appreciation level. You know, appreciation is really not the word. We, we were just connected kind of at the gut. Mm-hmm. Can you describe and, Aubrey? Yeah. Just like for people that have never met her? Yeah. Okay. I often describe Aubrey as my warrior queen, my, my, Viking, my Viking warrior princess. <laughs> Aubrey means king of the elves, but we often joked that she was more you know, a warrior queen, perhaps mm. some of the elf people. I don't know. She had blonde hair and, uh, she was slender, but so strong. And she had these shredded defined arms cause she was always holding a camera <laughs> and, and she had an extraordinary aesthetic. You know, Aubrey was, uh, was a photographer. She's a well-known food photographer and, and really sought after for her, curation of imagery and her ability to create a scene but behind that was this eternal fierceness she was just deeply and um and never ending ready to take up the sword and fight for the people in her lives really it was the people she loved that she was going to fight for and she'd come from a childhood of abuse really deep, really traumatic abuse. And she also mm-hmm. knew that the best way to survive was to fight. Mm-hmm. And so she was always ready to fight and she fought with me. And I, I think she fought with me at times that it wasn't necessary perhaps to fight, but she did anyway. Yeah. And it took a lot of, a lot of work in our relationship for the two of us to find a way to hold the inevitability of those fights well and use them to drive intimacy as opposed to tear us apart. Mm-hmm. And it's not just on her. I had my own things. I'm casting this in the light as if it was all her. Of course, I have my own issues to deal with, and they for certain reared their head. But that was the dynamic that came from her. Was she tall, short? Uh, yeah, she was. she's tall for a woman, I guess, 5'8". Yeah. You know, with the shock of blonde hair and we, and green eyes. What did you, what did you notice? Like, do you remember the first time you ever saw her? Yeah, I do remember the first time I saw her. I used to attend these red carpet type events as a way to promote my law firm. And before her photo career took off, she would attend these events. She would work these events to take photos for magazines. (laughs) And so there was always this woman, I would see her all the time. I would see her several times a week. There was this woman. Interesting. You know, she would always be in her all black outfit to sort of blend into the background, but she couldn't blend into the background Mm. because she was like a pillar of light. (laughs) Everywhere that she went, she was a force. You know, she was an inevitable magnet. She drew, she drew your, she, at least my complete attention. Mm. And so, of course, I started hitting on her and she, of course, started ignoring me because I was just (laughs) another. Douchebag trying to get his photo in the paper, as far as she was concerned. Mm. So it took a while for me to melt her defenses and show to her that I was a genuine character, I suppose. But yeah, you have a Pillar child. Of light. You have a child together. Yeah, we have a little girl, a three-year-old, three in in February, who has her mom's shock of blonde hair and my mom's blue eyes and her mom's fierceness and my <laughs> excitement and drive for adventure. She's a beautiful yes. little spirit. Speak, speak more about that with you for a second. Like somebody that's, you've told me a bit about work, profession, but if someone's never met you before, never seen you before, describe yourself. I guess that's the eternal question for me. I don't know how I'm seen from the outside. I have a big furry face. I'll tell you that. My wife demanded that I have a beard, so I grew one, and now I really? have it, and it's become part of me. Yeah, I. It, it's she still, said I look you the, have to have a beard. She just loved it. Yeah, I grew a little <laughs> bit of scruff right after we met, and she just loved it. To grow more, and it just kept growing. There was a time during COVID when I had this huge, just I don't even like a like a beaver on my face, just mm. too much. But yeah, I still have a beard. I think it's a dominant characteristic of my look 
Today I'm wearing glasses. Usually I don't because I'm a surfer and you can't really wear glasses in the water. So I'm nope. usually, uh, I'm usually I injured my eye. So I'm wearing my glasses today. I'm tall and I'm, it's always been a lucky fact. I'm tall and so people notice me. I also have a big funny nose and I think I have angular features. And so people tend to remember me. I don't look yeah, like yeah. your average person yeah, and yeah. Um, I'm comfortable in my skin. So I'm easy to be around, but I'm also, I think I also am a force. I think people remember me and I think they probably assign me too much importance as a result of these physical features that I was just born with and don't deserve, but they are there. But you're intense. I, I am pretty intense. Yeah. I get very excited about things. I get very sad about things. I have hey. the full scope of emotions. I don't. You're, a, you're emotive. Yeah. I've never used that word. I'm emotive. I don't hide it. I tried to let it flow. And lately I've been pretty damned sad. I'll tell you that's <laughs> uh, sadness has been the dominant one of recent of late. So, so why is that? Well, and, and maybe if you don't mind, maybe, like bring me back to the first moment of that sadness. Uh, well, so it was March 7th, about 7 PM. Aubrey had been of 2023, Aubrey had been feeling ill, you know, out of sorts for about six months going mm. to the doctors. The doctors have been saying, look, you're just a parent of a toddler. Of course you feel sick. It's nothing to worry about. <laughs> she finally convinced them that she needed some blood work. Mm. And about a week later, we got this call, March 7th. We were sitting in bed. We just put our kid to bed and we were just starting a, a movie, something on Netflix. I don't even remember what. And the phone rang and it was one medical, our, our primary care provider. And we got on the phone. That's a little weird. And they said, look, you need to go to the emergency room right now. Hmm. And, you know, we looked at each other and thought, well, okay, okay. Take it in stride. This is probably nothing. Yay. Uh, but we just got to follow the proper steps. So pack a bag. I'll do some research and find the best emergency room near us. It doesn't have too much of a wait. You head to the ER, I'll stay here with the kid. We'll be okay. So she packed a bag, went to the ER. 15 hours later, the nanny came to pick up our kid and I went and joined her at the ER. And just about then the test results started coming in. She'd been in the waiting room all night, but they had managed to get some blood work. And the doctor, the team of doctors came up and pulled us into a little alcove and pulled a curtain and their faces were ashen. This team was not really prepared to deliver the news that they had. And Aubrey and I knew something yes. serious, something was happening. We held each other's hands and sat down on this little cot. And the attending physician said, I'm so sorry. You either have an extraordinarily dangerous blood infection, but we can't detect that, or you have cancer. And it's probably cancer. And so, of course, we took a beat, a breath, held each other tighter, asked more questions. And it turned out that she was absolutely covered in lesions, nodules. Essentially, that means tumors <laughs> all over every conceivable organ, her lungs, wow. her kidney, her spleen, wow. her stomach, covered. Wow. And at that moment, we didn't know what kind of cancer it was. It was either a physical cancer, as they call it, that had metastasized yeah. and was therefore spread all over her body, which, which would have meant that she was gone probably in a matter of weeks or months. <laughs> or perhaps maybe, maybe there was a prayer that it was a blood cancer like lymphoma. Um, and a blood cancer that has spread that widely can, in fact, be knocked back in some cases. And that kind of news, you know, just just knocked us both over. But we, we, we held it together for one another that day. And I stayed with her at the hospital, of course, the rest of the day until our little kid was coming home. And then I had to go home to collect our little one. And, and I remember coming home 
and looking at her closet in her bedroom with all of her beautiful clothing hanging in the in that characteristic way of hers and her jewelry and her shoes and realizing that there was a good chance I was never going to see her in any of those things again. The person, the spirit that inhabited that space might be gone. This was when the uh, roller coaster began because the next day when I got to the hospital, there was some hope that it was now a blood cancer. It turned out eventually to be a blood cancer. I will spare you the exceptionally difficult details of the next eight months, except to say that um, hope was followed by impending disaster, followed by hope on pretty much a daily basis. Yes. I was at the hospital during the day. I would come home to put our kid to bed and go back to the hospital for the night. Some friends were staying at the house to take care of her if she woke okay. up. And then I would go back in the morning to get her off to school and then come back to the hospital at yes. night. And during this time, test results were coming in and new complications were arising and she would go into surgery and she would come out of surgery and we would think she was going to die from this thing and she would survive that thing. And we went through that for eight months. That's great. And then, she, and then uh, before, ultimately. So before we get to that part, and thank yeah. you for sharing yeah. this already sacred journey, am I to understand then that, that Aubrey was in hospital for eight months? like that? Mostly. Uh, really? The nuance, there's of course nuance. She was in for, from that moment we went to the ER, uh, 52 days. Um, she was in, she went from the ER, she was in the hospital for 52 straight days. Yeah. So then she comes out for a little <laughs> while and back in again for. Yeah. So she, it was 52 days then she, during which time something happened. They punctured her colon. She started to have sepsis. So they had to do an emergency mm -hmm. surgery, which resulted in um, uh, ileostomy, which is <laughs> something horrendous that nobody should have to live through, but she did. Once that stabilized, she came out after those 52 days and began chemo uh, as an outpatient, but had to be admitted several times over the course of the next several weeks because of complications with various of these conditions that she had. And, and then a side story, if you'll permit me, mm. um, you know, Aubrey's career was quite, quite extraordinary. And when cancer began, she had to put down all of her contracts and it felt like a huge loss, but one particular mm. contract came through, uh, and she had to turn it down and it was, a opportunity to shoot a book with Dolly Parton. And it, it hurt terribly that she had to turn it down, but there was just no way. And one day when she was just about to come out of the hospital and I, I was sitting there with her and she said, do you, know, do you think it'd be okay if I reached out to Dolly and just said, ah, things are looking good. I think I'm going to go into chemo, but I'd be willing to make it work if you would. And I was like, well, right, as long as you word it, not desperately, it's probably okay. <laughs> so she did. And I mean, within minutes, they answered and they were like, oh, we're so glad. We really wanted to work with you. We didn't think it was possible. Yes, of course, we'll make it work. So my wife booked the shoot in Nashville, this two-week shoot, which was scheduled to occur the day after her last chemo dose. And if you know anything about chemo, you know each progressive dose gets harder and harder to manage because it compounds in the body. Good. So she, she schedules this shoot for a week after her last chemo dose. And true to form, chemo dose is done. She can barely move. She <laughs> can barely get out of bed. She rallies because she's an absolute warrior. We pack up the whole family, fly out to Nashville, set ourselves up in an Airbnb, and she proceeds to um, knock a book out of the park for Dolly and her sister, and then comes home after that two weeks, and we're feeling great. You know, we're feeling great. Like, wow, we, we kicked cancer. Not hey. only did we kick cancer, but at the tail end of it, we went and had this extraordinary job. Your career's not over. And it, and not only is the career not over, but we had we we lived the dream of bringing the entire family so that you could have both family and career at the same time. Like, honey, this was a difficult time, but things are working. This is amazing. And then back to the primary narrative. 
two days after returning from that trip, we're scheduled for what's called a PET scan, which is to see how the tumors are doing. Mm -hmm. We got the PET scan, went in for the appointment with the oncologist to find out the status of things and got the news that the cancer was back. It was back. It was worse than ever. And it was growing faster than ever. And they laid out our, our options. And now as a to finally answer the question that you were asking about hospital inpatient versus outpatient mm -hmm. status, she needed to undergo first a surgery to put the ileostomy back in, which required her to be inpatient, followed by something called CAR T cell therapy, which is a particular kind of lymphoma treatment, which is really difficult on the body. So she needed to be inpatient for that too. So she went back in for the surgery and <laughs> then never left the hospital, was there for another three months roughly. So, you know, of the eight months of this eight month span of time, she was in for 52 days out for about a month and then back in for another three. This episode is sponsored by Shopify, selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Greg. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So for people that haven't been through an experience like this, it, it's not necessarily obvious how, how high the highs are and how low the lows are. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows this is tough. Everybody knows this is really tough, but there's a very distinctive kind of suffering brought on by an ongoing fight with cancer or an un going fight with, I suppose, any terminal illness, which is that in each end of hope, right? Each time you started to, okay, everything is possible again. Maybe there's a normal future ahead. Maybe there's a long future ahead. Every time you get the bad news, you really mourn the death of a person. <laughs> Even though you, it hasn't <laughs> happened, somehow you are really experiencing that a whole additional cycle. I suppose, first of all, having made that statement, do you relate to what I just said? Does that sound true or is it not like that for you? Yeah, it's really insightful. You're mourning the death, the, the death of possibility. You're mourning the death of hope. And then you have to face the loss of that person each time. During the first portion of the first hospital stay, we found ourselves very much at the whim of the physician's schedules and the coming and goings of surgeries and procedures. And we felt ourselves adrift 
in an yeah, yeah. extraordinarily difficult weather. You know, we we were at the mercy of external forces. And though we came in with a lot of reserves, realizing every single day that your partner might die that day for her realizing that she might never see her daughter again in a matter of hours, it was not healthy. We did not have a healthy way to approach the inescapable fact of those circumstances. And so we tried to form one. And so we tried to form a healthy way, which I think we did. And, and yes, it is exactly as you described. The healthy way includes acknowledging the inevitability of loss, the probability of loss in those circumstances, opening yourselves up to fully, fully, painfully, excruciatingly, terrifyingly feeling it. And then connecting in whatever way you have to do that. And for us, it was, you know, we had our indescribable tender moments where we held each other and whispered about these things. But we created a very specific practice too. And that practice was to time box conversations about death (laughs) so that we could spend most of our time living in hope because hope drives a certain kind of energy that allows you to prevail but also discuss what needed to be discussed, you know, and things need to be discussed. You've got to talk about estate planning. You've got to talk about schooling for the kids. You've got to talk about guardianship. You've got to talk about passwords, but you've also got to talk about, <laughs> you've got to talk about the whole of the unsaid, unfinished business of a love affair. All of the moments of misconnections, of hurt, mm-hmm. of regret. There's so much regret in, in the human experience. And it, and it, it must be outed. It must be outed. It will either be outed in the moment with the person who is the source of that thing, or it will come out later. And if you wait, it's more painful. And we both realized it. So we would time box and have these really rich, full, complete conversations. And we got very, very, very good at saying goodbye. We must have said goodbye completely from soup to nuts. 50, 60 times. And I am so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. It seems to me that all of what you've described was like a delayering process where at first you feel like you're intimate because after all, you're married, you're together and so on. And so there's an inherent intimacy in that. And so you think, okay, we're already operating there. Maybe not every moment of every day, of course, because there's practical masses too. But we, but then each layer of hope and then death and then mourning, the reality of this, etc. layer after layer, you're getting deeper and deeper into that intimacy. There's fewer and fewer facades, fewer places to hide. And yes. And that leads, if I understand the story right, up to a point that turned out to be six weeks before Aubrey actually died. What happened at that six-week mark? You are into something so rich and beautiful. It's such a deep vein for me. As you said, you know, Aubrey and I had done all the work. I, I had a relationship podcast, built a relationship seminar, and I had That's a plan like, oh. for marriages, for goodness sake. I mean, yeah. I know all the tools. I've read every book. Yeah. We did all the work. And yet, there was a kind of surrender to our love for one another that we could never quite, there was a kind of barrier we could never get through. And I, you know, we felt it. We felt it, but we never named it. And as you said in the beginning of the time, the hospital, we, we began to try to name it. It began with apologies and it began with acknowledgements of difficult times and working through them and connecting in words of love. But even through the process of being in the hospital, we were both trying so hard to survive that we still were not fully, fully surrendered in that final way that is in fact possible. And Aubrey finally broke through in an unbelievably palpable way. 
Aubrey, I remember I came into her room one day and she was just, she was just gazing at me. She was just gazing at me with such complete, unadorned clarity, just such, such joy. She was obviously in love with me and it just melted me. I didn't even know there was something to be melted. I think I had never quite allowed that love fully in yes. until that moment, until that moment when I completely felt it from her. And then I observed that she was loving everybody around her, her nurses, the people who came in to change her linens, her friends, her mother alluded to earlier in our conversation, the difficulties they had. And it began to that, that depth of surrender, that depth of appreciation that she was allowing herself for everybody around her began to infect all of us. I was able to open a part of me that I didn't know needed to be opened and melt a part of me that I didn't know needed to be melted to love her more fully, to allow her love in and to love her back, to love everybody in the room, to love our daughter. Aubrey carried that clarity with her really unwaveringly from that moment until she lost consciousness. I will acknowledge that extraordinary fear came and went during that time. What's the word for that sense of wrongness, unfairness, mm, you know, injustice of, it. of injustice? Those feelings remained present and came and went, but the surrendered love never left after that. And I have since been able to bring it out into the world in my life in a way that I didn't have access to before that yeah. as well. And I've reflected a lot on where did that come from? How did she have access to it? How did she give it to me? How can I give it to other people? And I, I honestly do suspect there are a lot of paths to this kind of, I'll, I'll refer to it again as a kind of surrendered appreciation, kind of completely unvarnished. You know, I find that I can really adore anyone if I allow myself to do so. I can really adore and cherish not just people, but experiences if I allow myself to, even the painful ones, even the difficult people. It's a matter of allowing. Yeah. It's, not allow it's not a matter of doing, it's a matter of allowing. I think there probably are a lot of paths to this, but the one that we found was great loss. It was being faced with great loss. You know, Aubrey was, I think she knew what she was facing. She was running out of time <laughs> and it pushed her over into a new paradigm. And then the force of her will, the force not will, the force of her surrender pulled the rest of us in with it. And I am now, I guess what you might call a great proponent of death meditation for this reason which is a tall order, but I think it's an extremely terrifying, raw to come into direct contact with the joy of what we are presented with on a moment by moment basis, but refuse to see. And that was the message I was trying to convey that I think you first noticed, and it was the message in my eulogy. And it transforms, it's shifted from then to now but it is essentially the same. There is a kind of love, there's a depth of surrender, a depth of joy that is available even in the worst of circumstances that most of us do not allow ourselves and that we can. We can, we absolutely can. And we are in times of upheaval. We're in, we're in an era socially where I think we probably need this kind of appreciation more than ever. This kind of love is more useful than it ever has been. And I'm here for it. What's struck me as you've shared that part of the journey are a few key words. You described the kind of love that Aubrey was exemplifying as clarity. You keep saying she was looking at me with clarity. 
looking at people with clarity. She had that clarity, which is curious to me because mm-hmm. it's not obvious, I think, when people talk about love, especially the innumerable ways people talk about love, that as you get to deepest love, it's about seeing things clearly. Allowing. So, so, oh, I, well, I like that. Allowing yourself to see things clearly. And one reason I'm intrigued by that is because it's been my experience that when I'm, when I have felt, let's say the highest form, the highest form of love I know, it seems to have as its primary characteristic knowledge, but it's, it's really rich knowledge. So it's like you still see somebody's faults. You still see who they are. It's not like rose-tinted glasses in which you don't see the reality of them, but you start to see other realities of them that were less obvious. In fact, many, many other things that were not as obvious or that you couldn't see for whatever reason. That's the first thing that's been interesting to me. Get a I'm riff on respond that. to that. I can riff and, on and that then, for sure, yeah. And then I, a couple of others. Go ahead. Yeah. The reason that I refer to it as an allowing is, and, and yes, I use the term clarity. It was The experience with Aubrey was as if she had taken away fogged glasses and could see what was actually present versus which was confused or clouded by agenda or assertion or some kind of desire or aversion. You know, for me, the way I interpret it harkens back to something I mentioned in earlier in our discussion was that the the essence of joy that I found, I found when I had that mystical experience was that the joy of the universe, the joy of being is to be found in letting the world be as it is. You just mm. got to let it be what it is. You got to be let it be what it is before you can do anything else. Mm. And if you, and I think that, I, and that's what it felt. You know, I wasn't thinking about that previous mystical experience, but when I reflect on it now, looking back at the time, that's that seemed to be the essence of it for Aubrey. She was just allowing all of us to be who we just were, just allowing us to be who we are, and then she could, and then she yeah. could see it then she could actually see it for its magnificence. Each of us is so magnificent. As you say, we are so layered. The tapestry is so exquisite. There's so much here. And if you just try to pull on one thread of that tapestry, yes, it's a mess, but there's so much more there. You know, there's this other analogy that comes to mind of, it feels like going on a roller coaster. For me, when I am on a roller coaster, if I clench up and try to resist that drop you know my stomach turns and i feel awful but the moment every time the moment i just throw my hands up and relax and just go with the drop it's exquisite you know it's exhilarating just allow that drop to be what it is it's beautiful and it's a little scary of course it's scary yes it's scary and people are scary because they have that are unpredictable. They have agendas, but they're beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, and um, and that's that's the clarity that I, when I intellectualize it, that's the clarity that I think I'm talking about here. She could see clearly because she was getting all of her previous stuff out of the way. Well, and what you've just riffed on really was sort of my second observation about what you'd shared, which was that this wasn't an additive process. Primarily, it was a subtraction process. Yeah, for sure. Because you're using the word allowed, if you allow yourself to see it. So it's not something you're fighting to see or something you need to add. It's, It's really seriously letting go of your need for someone to be different than they are. The need to try to control how the other person will show up, in what form they will show up, and to just 
see, to see them. They are right now to get rid of all that noise in your head so that you can experience them. Yeah. It's so great, right? Like I'm doing it with you right now. It's, it's, and I'm just noticing, I'm, I'm noticing in this moment, I can't actually get, I can't completely get myself out of the way. It's just a, you know, like I can't completely, I, I'm still here. I'm still interpreting you, but the, mm-hmm. but the more I pull away everything I think I know about you, the more beautiful you look. Like you physically look more beautiful as I just start to just like, let you be, you know, and then I can hear your voice and I'm like, God, really? Keep going, just... Eric. This is awfully, <laughs> this is great. It is though, you know, even the way you just said that and maybe second guessed it for a minute because you bit your lip. That was sweet. It was actually so sweet. It made me want to come over and give you a hug. Mm-hmm. And I, I just can notice you more. Not completely because I am still here. My ego is still asserting itself. It's still here. Mm-hmm. But I can let it calm down a little, you know, just be a little bit less. And Aubrey in those moments was letting it go completely away. You know, it was just, her, Aubrey was completely gone and she was just here to love us. I mean, this is, of course, the, you know, we're getting to the, close to the heart of the matter because this is why you're saying this kind of love is completely inherently not just connected to, but dependent on like the reality of death. You know, the, the idea that death is the great simplifier, uh, that that it strips away the, oh, there's a, there's a, there's a perfect word I'm looking for for this. Oh, it's, it's the name of a great, a, a great book. It kind of means ego pride, but it's, but it's another word. It's like the, the nonsense of the world, but what's the word I'm looking for here? There was a there was an adaptation of this book that was made into like one of these BBC classics. So on the tip of my tongue, it's worth getting to it. Vanity, yeah. Vanity Fair is the, the is the book and the adaptation, and of course yeah. the magazine. Yes, yes Vanity yes. Fair. That the Vanity Fair of life that yes. would con us into believing that utterly non-essential things really matter and that essential not things even because in the ones in a very real sense there are no essential things but that the essential people the essential relationships are either unimportant or at the the, the very least they can be put off we'll get to that I know they matter, but we'll get to that. We have time for that. That, that is the Vanity Fair. That is the lie that holds us, that, that traps us into living a really false life. And, and death seems to be one of maybe it's the thing that can strip that away from us and, and, and that's certainly what you experienced. It's a kind of therapy by therapy by death or something like that. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you so much for bringing us to that. It is, it's maybe the, the last missing ingredient of the recipe we've been discussing here that was yeah. so important to Aubrey. She really, before that realization or before that moment that I described when I came into the room and she had shifted she had been realizing and articulating and saying over and over for months that the only thing that mattered, the only thing that mattered was the quality of the relationships that she had developed and the time that she then spent with the people in those relationships. And she meant me and her daughter fundamentally, but also her friends. But that was the only thing that mm-hmm. mattered. And it was so utterly true to her that it became true for the rest of us too. <laughs> I <laughs> I will say her greatest final regret, I guess I should be circumspect, but I'll say it publicly anyway. Her greatest final regret was that she 
went and worked on that book. Hmm. Hmm. She saw it as making the mistake of participating in the Vanity Fair one last time when she mm. should have been following the wisdom of the insight she had. Mm. I interpret it very differently. I interpret it personally very differently, even still today. I interpret it as the best decision that she could make, thinking that she was in fact going to survive mm. and creating a future for her family that she wanted to, that included balance between work and love because we did all the things we went out there together but when she realized that the cancer was back she could only see it as a regret if if, if i'm if i might say so i think they can both be true because because all of us because all of us are operating at multiple levels at any given moment it can also it can be true that at one level she is operating out of a desire to believe that this represents a future that she can build and at the same time at a deeper level perhaps even at that moment not just with hindsight she may have felt this is this is not the thing you know that this is a re- that you're acting out of a remembered understanding not out of your current <laughs> understanding sure. and i think it's really profound that you shared it with it with me and i'm so glad that you did because when i hear the story the first time i'm hearing it through level one and thinking yeah of course i mean what a great creative project and exactly the kind of thing she really wanted to do and was professionally pursuing and a and it's a i mean it's like the symbolic culmination of something somebody that's world-renowned and they want to just work with you and you create this project with the skills and abilities you have i mean this that's like it's the dream yeah it's it's a it's really high on the on the totem pole that she was climbing and investing in professionally and then you hear it the second time from her perspective once she is fully relieved of let's say the last emblem uh, of the vanity fair then she simply regrets it she simply goes yeah that was not the thing to do with that time it was not the thing to do and i don't think it takes away at all from the story i think that it produces in me a reminder of exactly the clarity that that you that you've been alluding to it reminds me i spoke to the dean of 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 the religion school at byu years and years ago and i don't know i think i was asking him some sort of deep question like you know what's the most important lesson you've ever learned or you know what really matters in life or what's the mission which one's mission in life, you know, this kind of yeah. conversation. And he, he said, he said that two deans before him, when they were asked, well, you know, what have you learned when they were passing the baton to the next dean? You know, what have you, what are your regrets? And he said, well, I really wish that I'd written one less book and gone fishing with my son more. And that dean passed it on to the next dean, who passed it on to the dean I was talking about, who was passing it on to me. And I, first of all, I think that is quite a profound story. It's quite, of course, it it gets at the same trade-off that we're talking about here, this understanding of, of how do we live a life that is stripped away? How do we live a life where we have stripped away all of the, all of the fog of the fair but i remember sharing it with one of my daughters and she was like she's like that's that story's sadder than that that said i don't she's like she's like none of them learn the lesson like she understood it differently and it's like what she was saying is each one keeps sharing the advice like yeah you know i mean Mm -hmm. what i should have done is written one less book and gone you know fishing with my son more and passing it on now i'm not exactly sure that's what 
happen. And they're still in the office. They're they're literally in the office sharing the advice to get it, out of exactly. the office. Yeah. And that they're passing it on to the next person. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not sharing my daughter's insight in a way to judge these people. Yeah, I know, I get it. I'm sharing it because, because it really, really matters to actually do this. To it do does, this. it does, it does. But, you know, there's another truth, though. We cannot, you know, we are instantiated in this existence where we mm-hmm. cannot dedicate 100% of our time to contemplating love because we have to make money. You know, the reason fishing is an interesting thing to do fundamentally is because you're catching food. Food is good because it's sustenance, because it's survival. We got, we, we have to survive in this world. There's, there's, and, and if we're very good at our survival, we can turn it into a craft or an art form as Aubrey did that also brings us passion. And very few people do it to the degree with such success that as she was able, but it, you can. And, and so when I think about that, when I think of the inevitability, the inevitability of pain and suffering, the inevitability of time constraints, scarcity of resources, the inevitability of having to make difficult decisions constantly. And also this fundamental truth that we've been talking about, that there is extraordinary peace and joy and love available in surrender and in allowing the world to be as it is and those who we love to be who they are and then spending time with them from that place. Both of those two things are true at the same time. Mm-hmm. How do how do we do them both? Is is the mystery is is, is yeah, that's is, the tension. It's the tension and the you know, it's the ever renewing puzzle. Every time I think I have the answer, you know, when I had that mystical experience mm-hmm. before getting into a relationship with Aubrey and, and now having this extraordinary insight at the end of her life. I have sort of a, a, an awakening of realization, a brightening of my ability to, to connect with these essences, these life forces. And then they fall away and I come and, and, and then I get back into a routine of life. And, and I don't know that that's avoidable for anybody, including monks on the mountain who spend all of their time contemplating these issues because of the essence of what it means to be conscious. Yeah. I mean, you're f- framing that in a and so it's an ongoing practice is all I'm saying. Yeah, it's just, no, no, it must just be agreed. a practice. Well, I mean, a phrase that's, oh, there's loads more to go on to that subject, but, but essentialism, yeah. you know, the book that I, one of the books I've written has as a subtitle, the disciplined pursuit of yeah. less. And I do think that's yeah. something to this point here, right? It's, it's not, it's not exactly in this case, not exactly the disciplined pursuit of less. I mean, it's a sort of disciplined pursuit of love, you know, but, but, but I think it, I, I still think it is, yes. I still think that what you came to, to be, or at least I want it to be in my life, the, ma- the major versus the minor. Yes, 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 yes. That, that, yeah. because yeah. otherwise we then get pulled into the Vanity Fair becomes the major and this, all this other, what, what we start to think of, oh yeah, just mm-hmm. that other stuff at the periphery, you know, the, the thing itself, the meaning itself. And in fact, that's a good transition because when you went public with this, you wrote, you know, I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a series of tweets. It ranges to about two and a half pages on a normal document. I bolded a few phrases that to me, I would say they basically are trying to say exactly the same thing, but in really beautiful ways. I want, rather than put the pressure on you to kind of conjure what those phrases were, I want to share a few of them together and then have you comment on them. So here we go. Facing death every day allowed us to set aside the silly things and focus on what matters. The privilege of knowing and loving her so deeply outpaces every other experience I've had. It's the one thing that matters. Yes. During her time in the hospital, her one regret was that she hadn't spent more time deepening relationships with the people she cared about. Next. The only thing that matters at all is the quality of the relationships with the people we love. Focus on that. Okay. There's two or three more still, if you'll allow me. I offer that at the center, 
that is at the center of your life, of, of what matters, is family, community, and connection. I know it sounds trite in a tweet, but I can guarantee you with absolute certainty that when you're dying and you will die, these are the only things you will care about more. Yeah. By the end, her deeper way of loving had become very conscious and intentional. Her change was palpable. She softened and opened. She began to be with those around her in a kind of total surrender. We all felt that she was experiencing us without a filter somehow. We were seen and loved. It was beautiful. It was overpowering. It was humbling beyond measure. As she did this, those around her began to learn how to do it as well. I learned being loved that completely is overwhelming in the very best sense. It's probably all any of us ever crave. Loving that deeply is a practice. The key to this kind of love is necessarily different for everyone. I know only one way, complete surrender to the inevitable death of yourself and those you love. I simply want to say out loud that it is possible to love with a depth and breadth that I used to think was fiction. And here we go. But I think, by the way, <laughs> this final sentence I want to read seems to me to summarize everything else into a single idea that I think is heartbreakingly uncovered, really profound. And you, you wrote, progressively deepening love is the goal, an end in and of itself. If there is a point, it's that. Okay. I was eloquent that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were. But, but, um, do, but do you see in that a single thread? I feel like there's a thread there. That's what I see. There's a there's this, and I think well, the you thread, said it the, the thread end. That, the thread, yeah, the thread that you're pointing to. I think I think the thread that you're pointing to, and I I fully agree, is that as you put it, let's make this the major, not the minor. Mm. And I will say, all of that was preceded by a statement where I said something like, "We we we can't contemplate this with 100% of our attention because mm -hmm. we have yeah, you demands did on, our, on our lives. But, That's right. So this must be an ongoing practice. Mm -hmm. And then the only thing that matters, I can tell you when you're on your deathbed, the only thing you will care about is the quality of the relationships, the time you actually spent with the people that you love. And I mean the actual time mm -hmm. and the depth of that time mm -hmm. and, and everything. And so focus on it. Like, yes, have, have it be the major, have it be the major, not the minor. Yeah. Cause you can't do only the one. And, and, and which I completely agree with because we live in a temporal world and we've got all sorts of practical responsibilities. The way that you put it at the end there, I'm going to say it again for emphasis, progressively deepening love is the goal yeah. and end in and of itself. Yeah. If there is a point, it's that. Yeah. Right. To me, if you take that language, right, the idea of this is the point, this is the purpose, then what happens from there is that everything else falls into its proper perspective. Mm, yes. So the objective is not to be a monk, right? Right. Well, first of all, that in one sense, I think quite clearly is inconsistent with the goal. Not knocking monks now, I'm just saying it's not to... What you wrote isn't that you're supposed to contemplate love for, you know, all day long. It's that you're to progressively deepen relationships with the people who matter most to you. That's the point. That's the goal. Now, there are lots of other responsibilities, but let it, some fall out of your life altogether because they don't contribute anything to that point. Let some things play a role, bigger role than they used to because of that goal you know it's like put everything in its proper order yeah that's the thing yeah that's the thing i i think in fact i think <laughs> just talking about the thing i wrote in the past i i think after i said that you have to you can't contemplate it with all of your attention because there right. are these other responsibilities i said but what's at the source of doing those things in the first place like why do you need to go out and get food for the family because of the family you know, why, why, why do you want to be rich? Probably not for the actual paper currency or the number on the computer screen, but probably for the freedom that that represents that allows you to do something more meaningful with your time. And I propose that the most meaningful thing that you can do is spend 
deep into relationships with people. Let me footnote two and just acknowledge, you know, something that I think, I, I think we need to acknowledge more, which is that meaning is fabricated fundamentally. It's not an objective essence, but, but, but we are definitely keyed, appreciate certain values and certain kinds of meaning more than others. And the one that is the most fundamentally subjectively important to all of us is this, is this that we're talking about here. Yeah. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's necessary to push on that point or or what is semantics and what is different. But when you say meaning is fabricated, I would prefer in my own life, what I would say is that meaning is detected not designed. I wouldn't use the term fabricated for me. I would say you detect it, you find it, it's there. And a big part of the work of life is to uncover it. And you've actually given a formula for it in your experience. You've actually experienced it because it's by removing all the things it isn't, by letting go of all of the nonsense, the vanity fair, and, and and certainly from your description of Aubrey, that's so penetrating and profound is, yeah, she's like, once everything is stripped away, everything, layer after layer after layer after layer, and on and on it goes. I mean, to live with a life and to, to, to live in that mode of today could be the final day, actually, Again and again, for almost you know, you gave us months and months of the final eight months, from the moment of the of the first diagnosis or first attempted diagnosis to the end. Those eight months, so much of it's in the hospital. So much of it is actually, as you've described it, you know, you're not having a few months and then suddenly bad news. It's like every day, all good news, every day bad news, back and forth and back and forth. I think that there was a a a, a cleansing process, let's call it, like like you'd purify gold. You know, it's like hammer out the nonsense, hammer out Vanity Fair, hammer it out. Yeah. And layer by layer, she got to the point where she understood what it really was about and to such a level of clarity that even the book project that meant so much and she sacrificed for so much, she could also look at differently. And, 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 and that, doesn't mean you, that doesn't mean it was a bad thing by any stretch, but yeah. she seemed to see exactly what it was really about that 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 to me that's the detection process in a very intense and 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 what's the word i'm looking for compressed experience hallelujah you know there's no thanks for reminding me of that wisdom so eloquently it's not it 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 is a matter of semantics i don't think it matters fabricated detected because what is laid bare in that refining in that refinement process that we went through through those eight months is fundamentally the thing that for whatever reason we humans actually care about mm-hmm. exactly and, and and i guess i i guess to your point i guess i don't care why i think it's a dis- i think it could be a distraction I, I i i'm with you on that like in yeah especially if one is oh. is if, if a person's tendency is yeah. to sort of, well, there's a biblical phrase on this, like forever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth, yes. right? So if, yes, if a person yes, yes. tends towards this, well, I have to kind of pontificate. I got to think about that again. I got to pontificate yes. about that again. Yes. And and not like I've ever been guilty of that or anything. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, this this is certainly mine. Nice. But, but <laughs> it's, like, it's like, just accept that it is. I mean, that's it the, is. Yeah. the it's rising point of this essay that, that, that was so touching to me and to so many people. This is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Now build your life around it. This is a detection. Yes. Build your life around it. You <laughs> cannot get to your deathbed. I mean, this is your position, I think, is certainly my position, that you you cannot get to your deathbed and regret making that the point. You you cannot get to your deathbed and go, I wish, I mean, I'll use a trivial example. I wish I'd spent more time on Instagram, right? Like you don't do that. But yeah. apparently, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. you don't even say, I wish I'd written another book that loads of people read. Like you don't even do that, which is an author, like is a thing, you know, like I have to think about that. The trade-off, the right trade-off here. Or am I missing, 
you know, I'm missing it, missing the moment, missing what matters all along the way. And it really is such a privilege to talk about this. Such, mm. such an opportunity. I just am so grateful for your reaching out. I'll tell you, I'm in, what is it? Month two and a half, I guess. Mm. I guess I'm month two and a half since she died. And a single dad mm. to a toddler is consuming. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I've been very proactive about mourning fully. Mm. such that there aren't any crevices of retained and therefore, you know. Unresolved things. Unresolved things that tend to rot. I've been very proactive about this. I've been moving through extraordinary amounts of emotion and writing that thread uh, was part of that. And I find myself continually relearning this lesson, frankly, deeper ways, Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes being able to apply it and sometimes just not, you know, sometimes just not being able to do it, sometimes over-intellectualizing it. Mm -hmm. I am definitely prone to that. And I love, I love, love, love. I'm so grateful for your reflection of it. You know, you reminded me about something about Aubrey, which was that she just didn't have time she was extraordinarily smart, but she just never had time at any point in her life for over-intellectualizing. Mm-hmm. She just cast it away and got to the point. Mm-hmm. She was she was the same with her gear, with photography. She didn't care about gear. Just, mm-hmm. I, I don't care. Give me the camera. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make an amazing photo. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, and that's how she was at the end. And that's the point here. It's like, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter why this is the case. No. So, it can, it can, you can define it any way you want. It doesn't matter what tradition or discipline you come from. Your food. It doesn't matter your political persuasion, your gender. It just doesn't matter. The truth right. is, this is what you're going to care about when you're dying. This is what you just remember. This is what you're going to care about when you're dying. It is, I have to remind myself I was there. I, I was there in the most intimate, horrible way saw it in the most profound way and I have to remind myself constantly this is what I'm going to care about when I die when I die build your life around that Greg thank you for reflecting this thank you I'm so grateful thank you for having this conversation with me and thank you for being on the podcast This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.